and a head for business and a bod for sin. Is there anything wrong with that? TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. And together we are in your ears for the hour. Manson Mitchell, delighted to be there and hope that you will enjoy our special guest today, a star in the firmament of 11.50 a.m. And we're talking about Christine Upchurch. But before that, we must say hello to the man who keeps us on an even keel every Friday. He's a bad boy. He's a bad boy, bad boy. Benny Mathers at the board. How are you today, sir? Very, 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 very well. I'm going to go stretch it out a little further than I did last hour. Five times for very, not just four. That's it. great. I've increased it. All right. Mm-hmm. I've got to slow myself down because I, unlike my half calf today, I decided to go full power to the shield. <laughs> oh boy! And I'm talking like uh, I'm about one shade below an auctioneer. <laughs> so I've got to cool my jets here, Suzanne. I'm so delighted that we were able to get Christine's time for today because she has so many things to say and she takes life in stride, but also looks at it from many different angles and all of them metaphysically useful if you're going to do an hour of metaphysical Q&A. Absolutely. Christine Upchurch is a writer, teacher, inspirational speaker, energy healer, and host of the nationally syndicated The Christine Upchurch Show, which follows Manson Mitchell. And she herself has been a featured guest on radio and television shows across North America. She has taught thousands around the globe how to tap into subtle energy for healing and transformation. Having developed a deep understanding of the energetic nature of of change, Christine synthesizes various approaches to change into a unifying model, providing individuals with a new type of personalized roadmap for creating positive, lasting change. She offers this in workshops um, occasionally, but they, she's about much more than that. And we're going to find out what else she has been up to. Welcome to Manson Mitchell, Christine Upchurch. Thank you so much. It's nice to be back. It is. It's, it's nice to have you with us anytime, Christine. I look at uh, I look at life through the lens of metaphysics, and mm-hmm. I can say that's been the case with me for pretty close to 25 years now. Suzanne was doing the same thing here in Florida. Then she moved to Seattle. We met in early 2001, and here we are, 18 years and counting into our relationship. And I think a lot of what sustains us, which that which keeps the friendship between us as well as the romance alive, is this tendency that we share to take the spiritual view of life without being, I must say, without being overtly religious. It's more a matter of perception and keeping faith with the greater laws of life. And beyond that, I think I'm getting too ponderous. You take it from there. Well, I think that what you're talking about is a very powerful approach to any aspect of life, and that is, you know, taking the bird's eye view sometimes, you know, that that higher level view, whether you're interacting with another person, either in a positive or a negative way, to, um, you know, forgiving yourself along the way when you make a mistake or thinking about where you're going to go next in your career, taking that bird's eye view and having sort of that, that metaphysical, the more than physical perspective on reality 
can serve us in, in many, many ways. And, and having that, you know, that perspective really steps us into observer. And that observer role is really informative. You know, if you can let go of those attachments long enough to, to take that bird's eye view and observe, then you can get a lot of useful information about, um, you know, w- what's going on, what you need to heal, what's your next step kind of thing. You know, Christine, when when I think about you and think about having you on, in addition to the aspect of metaphysical spirituality, metaphysical living, how to use the unseen to to tap into this reality and connect that all together, I, I say to Gary, I think of you as a master change agent, but you are you evolve, you kind of shift and change and evolve into other things. So in addition to what you were doing, what are you doing now? What is it that is intriguing you now? What have you kind of moved into lately? What I have moved into is um, have taken that bird's eye view about the belief system within the New Age movement. Um, I'm a contributing author to a best-selling book, um, And my chapter was on the downside to seeking and basically looking at how seeking, whether we're talking about spiritual seeking or seeking to manifest, has gotten kind of twisted around. And I'm currently working on a book called The Top 20 Myths About Spirituality because we have developed this dogma within the New Age movement. You know, once upon a time back in the 1970s when we sort of were shifting, kind of breaking down the edges of, of, of the the belief box within the context of religion and and sort of saying there's more to spirituality. And we started considering things like reincarnation and about, um, you know, things like yoga and meditation. And we started approaching things differently. And, and, you know, over the last half a century almost, it seems like we we really shifted dramatically. And yet many think that, oh, well, we're you know, we don't have those restrictive beliefs anymore. And I'm calling BS to that because as I've discovered myself in my own life and within the, the lives of, of colleagues and, and students, um, it's, we do have these, these beliefs that can keep us stuck, that sort of put on the blinders, so to speak, like this is what spirituality is. So um, I guess I'm kind of rebelling a little bit. Um, and it's not really for the purpose of, of rebelling against the New Age movement, but rather to sort of, in a, my own small way, to help pull it forward. You know, if we can open up, take those blinders off and, and shift our perspective, then we can embrace more expansive living. Well, I really like that you're saying that a lot. And as I, I said a few minutes ago, um, you know, I think of, of you as somebody who is also, who does seek you are seeking to expand your knowledge of the the 3D world we live in and the metaphysical world. And I, and I like the fact that you're saying that there are myths because, interestingly enough, we, we've heard a lot about something like, let's say, The Secret, mm-hmm. where where people have seen the movie and and they're they're like all into The Secret. And then... Other people, after after a while, they're kind of breaking it down, and they're saying, "Well, but they're trying to sell you a bill of goods, mm-hmm. not not purposefully, not nefariously, but 
you know, it doesn't exactly work that way. Yeah. And so there's this refinement that's going on. And I think of, of your own thinking as constantly being refined. So I'm glad you're talking about myths of spirituality, because I think that is ripe to be investigated. We do hear people say, I'm spiritual, not religious. Mm-hmm. And, and I think religion continues to take more and more of a hit at the same time, people do need to come together in groups, and they do find themselves grouping together in various religions to support one another. Mm-hmm. So we're not ready quite yet to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And, and you know what you were just talking about, Suzanne, about um, seeking. I think that in some sense, learning to consciously manifest is very powerful. You know, having an intention, coming to it you know, to in, into alignment with it on an energetic level and then allowing it to come into fruition if that's in our best and highest good. It's it's really beautiful. And yet what's happened is, you're right, they're, they're like people who focus on, okay, you want to manifest $100,000, then jump through these hoops and have this intention. And really it's it's partly based on a mistranslation of a Bible phrase. You know that phrase, seek and ye shall find? which is, you know, oh, so popular even in the New Age movement. It's powerful in some ways, and yet, did you know it was mistranslated? When it was translated into English, it wasn't supposed to be seek and ye shall find. There's this nuance um, in in the language it came from, and it it came from Greek, and it's surprising, but from Greek into English when it was originally translated. And it was supposed to be keep on seeking, but not keep on seeking as in, over and over and over again, but keep on as in all the time. So you think about that, and it's like we've been seeking like a hunter seeks a buffalo, like go after that $100,000 or go after that mate, you know, whatever it is that we really want and use the secret to manifest. But we should be seeking more like a gatherer because what does a gatherer do? A gatherer has a sense like, oh, it's it's time to, to seek berries. You know, it feels like it's time. And then they go out, and as they wander around, uh, yes, they're looking for the, the bright red or the bright purple of the berries, but they've got this peripheral vision. What else am I going to find along my path? Oh, there's some tender young greens over there. Oh, there's something over there that's interesting. And, and they gather what the universe has provided for them along their path. And yes, they went out seeking something but it's this wider focus of, of a seeking like a gather. And I really do believe that the true translation, and I believe it's the, the New World Bible, they, they've actually changed the translation to keep on seeking and you shall find. Um, but it's really not keep on the way we think typically in English. It's, it's more like all the time, which means opening your mind, opening your heart, opening your awareness, opening that inner connection um, and walking your path that way as opposed to, you know, hunting that buffalo. And, you know, uh, Christine, it sounds more like it's about the journey and not the destination yeah. because seek and ye shall find is there will be an end to this, that oh, you will get right. that thing that you want. We will manifest exactly, you know, what it is you want. Whereas this keep on seeking sounds like it is this is how you do the journey successfully i was reading an article just uh, within the last day or so about exactly what you're talking about when we when we when we aren't focused on something so specific 
mm-hmm. you know, like the 1979 red Mustang, you know, whatever right, it is. Right. But if you're if you're seeking um, an experience that the experience will show you many options and many ways to have your desire fulfilled, mm. but it not, might not be that one particular thing. Right. And, right. and, and Gary, you've talked about that before recently too. To me, it's a matter of what's drawing your attention in the given moment. Mm. Now you can, you can be talking about principle. You can be talking about a concept that fits fairly neatly or not under that rubric of metaphysics. But what's drawing your attention? I find that in in life generally and specifically, if you see yourself as being on a spiritual path, that's a commonplace phrase, uh-huh. there are so many distractions just in ordinary living that if you can, as the Zen masters have been teaching forever, if you can do your practice, if you can be present even in the midst of the maddening crowd out in the marketplaces of life or under a deadline at work or under the lash of a a villainous boss Mm. or in a difficult relationship, that's true practice. That's where you grow. That's where the growth happens. Sitting with your back straight and pillows underneath you and uh, to your back in your bedroom is lovely. That's a great experience, Uh but that's the training ground for what you hope to take into the world. Yes, and and I think that the juiciest spiritual, I put spiritual in air quotes, uh, moments are those that happen within the context of our daily lives. You know, the the big, uh-huh, head-to-toe chill of some sort of connection or understanding. While we're sitting in traffic, that, that connection with the old man in the produce section in the grocery store, um, the synchronicities that unfold when we're sort of in ease and, and going with flow— you know that that's that's the cool stuff, and the the sitting on pillows that's valuable. But it's really about training ourselves to be opening to that flow for those juicy moments. I like that. And and are those moments, if I'm if I'm reading this correctly, um, those moments are about change for us personally moving from a place of, let's say, neutrality or, or negativity into something more pleasurable, something more positive. It, it, that, isn't that a change from one state to another state? It, a it, more... it can be, although I think that that neutrality, that neutral state can be very powerful because, again, you know, we were talking about that observer role and Gary, you were talking, you said a very powerful word. You said attention. And I think that that, that state of neutrality can, can sort of alert us to what's going on and we can pay better attention um, as opposed to putting it through our filter of our emotions and our attachments. And yes, Suzanne, it can definitely lead us to more joy and more connection and, and feeling more, you know, lively, you know, more, more enlightened too, but it's, it's really, it's not the, for the purpose of getting there, but rather sort of being in this state of awareness and attention and even the observer neutrality and, and growing and moving based on that. And yeah, it it can, it can be wonderful, but it's not necessarily wonderful. 
You know, the longer I live, Christine, the more I think that if our lives are eternal, the way, you know, we have a tendency to say they are, Uh uh, and perhaps um, many lives, there isn't an end point. Mm -hmm. There isn't a, okay, now I'm done. I'm fully cooked. That's it. You know, put me, put me to rest. Oh, darn, Suzanne, you burst my bubble. (laughs) But, but but are we intended somehow when we say, okay, I'm going to incarnate on earth. I know there are a lot of lessons, but I don't know that we have to be so miserable in our spiritual and our soul growth. And it seems to me that if we choose to be here and if we choose to experience certain things, we experience them and then we don't like it. Mm-hmm. And and there's always that that choice. I think that there is this tendency for us to be negative about being here. Mm-hmm. Why me? Why did this happen to me? Why do I have this particular problem? Instead of finding the those moments where you know you you feel good you mm-hmm. you get that aha moment you feel more connected you feel more love we're all kind of going for that but somehow we think that that's rare or not as available because most of the time we're suffering right and, and don't you th- I, yeah I, I i agree that the suffering um isn't you know completely necessary but here's the deal in order to have that place of of feeling that love flow and and having things unfold with ease, we have to also be totally allowing and surrendering to that stuff that feels really crappy. You know, it's the it it's those those things that we push away, resist, suppress that keeps us in that state of negativity. I mean, you think about a baby, you know, a baby's uncomfortable or needing something and not getting what he or she needs and the baby cries and then that that energy is released and then the baby comes to peace and then it's so enlivened. I mean, if you look in the eyes of a baby, there's so much light and life force because they allow those things to move through them. And um, we as adults tend to not do that as well. I'm curious to know, I'm going to take a, a right turn here, Christine. I'm curious to know, about those times in your life, and I think we've all had one or two, when you have taken a a detour, if you will, or maybe you just changed lanes on the great path of life. And in doing so, you went through an experience of giving up or even losing something valuable to you at the time. And without that loss, it might be the loss of a job. It might be falling out with a colleague or a friend or a relative. Without that break, you wouldn't have been able to progress to where you are today. (laughs) You just described many stages of my life. (laughs) You know, um, years ago, I was working on my doctoral dissertation in mathematical statistics. Um, Had my master's. I'd done my undergrad in math. I was taking this sensible approach to life because I knew I was good at that. And, you know, I was making money part-time as a statistician, knew that I had a great career path ahead of me, but I was really unhappy because it wasn't connected to my heart. So, um, and I had also heard this voice, this disembodied voice. Yep, I know I sound crazy, but this disembodied voice, not once, but twice saying that I was a healer and I ignored it. 
And then in my unhappiness in grad school, I developed the early stages of lymphoma. And doctors didn't have anything to offer me except what would be like, it would be um, basically chemotherapy for the rest of my life. And they wanted to wait a while before starting it. So there I was in this, this like psychological and spiritual, emotional abyss. And um, I shifted in a lot of ways. And I ended up healing myself, to make a long story short. But that shifted my path. Had I not had that illness, uh, I think ultimately I, you know, I'd probably be dead now because I wouldn't be connected to my heart. But I would never have gone down the, the road towards becoming a healer. Um, I wouldn't end up opening up to things like self-empowerment and, and having conscious conversations on the radio every week the way you guys do too. And, and so, yeah, there have been a lot of times I've been redirected. And it's often divinely orchestrated, even though at the time it doesn't feel so divine. No, it doesn't in the moment. And um, there's a, I was watching a funny TV show where they were saying, well, you know, in time, we'll look back on this and we'll laugh. Mm -hmm. And then they were trying to make fun of the situation right then and there. Too soon? Too soon? You know, it, it, sometimes it takes a little bit of time for us to see that, you know, the experience that we've had does have some benefit and it, it, you know, it certainly is not in the moment that that is going on. Yeah. And I think that there are plenty of people in the new age movement who think I have to find the purpose right now. You know, I'm, I'm in, in this turmoil, whether it's a health challenge or a relationship challenge or, you know, losing a job, whatever it is, I have to find the meaning. I'm sure there's a higher meaning. And I say, don't look for it then, you know, let go, feel what you're going to feel, learn what you need to learn based on that experience. And then in hindsight, you might, you know, get that bird's eye view. But when you're in the midst of it, trying to, to attach meaning to it, or even just to say, I'm sure this is, you know, this is for my best and highest good, when you're re- not really feeling sure, I think that that impedes the progress. We need to just sort of let go to what is and um, the meaning will, you know, it will either sneak up us, on us or slowly or it will like kind of like download at some moment after the fact or perhaps even while we're going through it. But that attachment to having to find meaning um, can really get in the way of, of moving forward and eventually even getting the meaning. Is that one of your top 20 myths about spirituality? Um, well, in a roundabout way, it's it's okay. um, yeah, yeah, it's. Yeah, finding meaning in something. Right. Well, that's now you, that phrase itself. See, that's great. Finding meaning, seek and ye shall find. And mm-hmm. I, I, in recent years, I mean, it took me a long time to get to this place. I question the whole idea of finding meaning rather than creating meaning. Mm, yeah. I, in uh, in my seniority, I've discovered that the universe is so incomprehensibly vast Mm -hmm. and quite possibly multi-dimensional there are people who say well of course it is and I say no that's not true you have no proof but let's just consider the possibility that it is as deep as it is wide Uh and expanding if the universe is constructed in such a fashion as to permit just about anything to be created in a form that within the realm of possibility can be created that puts a lot of responsibility on the individual. Yeah. We can't blame our bad childhood 
We can't say, well, it's luck of the draw and I had rotten parents, or I wish that I'd gotten better, gotten along better with my siblings, but they're crummy and I'm wonderful, and why am I feeling so bad? Mm -hmm. Why am I so persecuted in life? If you are creating a set of circumstances for yourself in any stage of your life so that you are suffering rather than experiencing fulfillment or, God forbid, pleasure, you're not going to get out of that box until you decide to take responsibility for creating your life the way you wish it to be. Yeah. I think that's just a huge mantle of responsibility. And most people, most of the time, are running away from it. Yeah, I, I agree with you, um, Gary. And I think that uh, part of taking responsibility is finding purpose in the woundedness, purpose in your um, your challenges uh, and when you can find that and, and shift your story based on that, then that allows you, that empowers you to work towards creating um, a more positive life. Wow. Shifting your story. I like that. I'd like to go more into shifting your story. And we're just a couple minutes out from our break. Why don't we go ahead and, and take our break now? And when we come back, more with Christine Upchurch. More about shifting your story after the break, and she will give us some clues as to how we might be able to do that. We appreciate your listening to Manson Mitchell on Alternative Talk AM 1150. We'll be right back. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to mansonmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mance and Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is manceandmitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. There are many sounds in your day-to-day -day life. There are sounds that wake you up. Sounds that make you smile. <laughs> Sounds that energize you. <laughs> and sounds that help you relax. But there are some sounds that can alert you to danger and can help save lives. Wireless emergency alerts, now on many mobile devices, use a unique sound and vibration to bring you information about severe weather events, amber alerts, or other emergencies in your area. With critical information from local sources you know and trust, you can be in the know, wherever you are. For more information, visit ready.gov alerts. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed KKNW star Christine Upchurch for an hour of what we like to call metaphysical Q&A. On Saturday, Josie Varga returns with stories of heavenly communications with our dear loved ones between this side and the other side. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150.
Tell your friends about Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Christine Upchurch, who is the host of the Christine Upchurch Show, which follows Manson Mitchell, and we are happy to bring her on every once in a while. She likes to bring us on every once in a while, and that's going to be next Friday. So we will do this again. In the meantime, Christine, if people would like to connect with you other than your show, which they know follows ours, what is your website and how can they connect with you through social media? The website is christineupchurch.com. You can also get there by just typing in top20myths.com. And um, I'm, I've got a page on Facebook, Christine Upchurch professional page. Twitter, it's funny, I've got, I've got two handles on Twitter, one of them I'm like just following a lot of political stuff and don't do any posting. The other one I'm just sort of getting started doing posting. So really Facebook's the best social media approach. Thank you. I'd like to duck this in before we carry on with our metaphysical speculations. And that is simply to ask you, one voter to another, Christine, what did you think of that Las Vegas Democratic debate the other night? I loved it. I, I really did. And I know that there was some some, uh, let's see, some things getting slung about. Um, and uh, and yet I found it to be kind of enlightening about like where people go within the context of heated debate, um, how the individuals might do within the context of a debate against Trump, if Trump even shows up for a debate, which is doubt, I mean, doubtful. But um, I think so, too. And um, and. You know, I know that there were some people who thought, oh, there should be some more camaraderie. But I, I, I view somebody like like Elizabeth Warren. You know, she did her attacks early on um, against Bloomberg. And yet um, when Amy Klobuchar was being attacked for having forgotten the name of the president of Mexico, um, you know, repeatedly over and over again, she said, wait a minute, I'm going to stand up for her here. You know, it's one thing if you don't understand policy. It's, an, you know, it's like there's some things that are really important. Forgetting a name means you're human, you know, like, and I, and I thought that was great. It was really showing like, okay, there's a difference here, and I'm passionate about this difference, and I'm going to stick up for, you know, my fellow senator here. Um, and, and so I, I, I thought it was good. I thought it was helpful. Uh, and I, I don't know, I, I enjoyed it. I know that there's been a lot of flack out there about it, but I really did kind of enjoy it. I'm hoping that it doesn't turn out to fuel a sense of divisiveness and a fractured Democratic Party. And I say that rather like, you know, shouting, come back as the horse runs out of the barn, yeah. because it is going on. I like Amy Klobuchar in particular. I'm glad you brought her up. I thought it was great that she has a, a reputation for having a temper. Mm -hmm. She can be hard on staff. Yeah. But I thought it was great when she turned to Pete Buttigieg and said, it must be nice to be perfect. <laughs> I know, that was a good line. Yeah. I mean, and she's passed over 100 bills, et cetera, et cetera. And many more had Mitch, McCon Mitch McConnell had any interest whatsoever right. in seeing legislation passed coming from a Democratic House, which he does not there. But I thought this is somebody who takes life in practical terms, does the best she can with it. And the great thing I like about Amy, here's a little plug for her candidacy. She doesn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yeah. She sees the necessity in pragmatic terms of doing good for America, doing good for people without it having to meet some kind of ideological litmus test. Right, right. And, and you know, I, 
I understand this concept of wanting things to look so kumbaya, you know, moving forward in the Democratic Party. And yet I really do think it's it's time to air our truth and air differences and still come back together, because I think we've got this perspective, like with a family, for instance, that if there's any conflict, then it's, you know, it creates this terrible dysfunction. Whereas I think that you can have um, conflict of various sorts when it's not dysfunctional and say, I've, I believe this, you know, and somebody else says, I think that and this was right and this was wrong and, and really state how they feel, but still come back together. And I think every single candidate pretty much has said that they would stand behind whoever is the nominee. So I, you know, I don't view it as dysfunctional that there was some conflict and I think that there's going to be some because we're in the process of growing. Um, we need to transform the Democratic Party, transform um, our political um, process because it's so dysfunctional. And there are going to be some growing pains along the way. I'd like to see that electoral college completely eliminated so that the person who gets the most votes wins like in any other election. Uh But uh, the most hopeful thing, the most positive thing I heard from the pundits following that, and I don't want to give out a name because I don't want to get it wrong, but it was a gentleman who said that, remember all the people who were on the Republican uh, ticket early on Mm -hmm. and how they were eliminated one by one and it turns out that the the galvanizing behind Trump, according to this pundit, had very much to do with people who did not want to see Hillary as president. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he said uh, that he believes that when the others are eliminated and we're down to whoever the one is, that there will be that same kind of galvanizing behind the Democratic nominee, no matter who it is, because they are going to be so incredibly against Trump. Mm -hmm. I hope he's right, that it won't really matter who it is, it will be anybody but Trump. Yeah, and and the question becomes, like, when we get to that stage, then... Some people believe you, you, you know, attack low by going low. Some people believe you attack low by, by going high. I don't know what the right approach is, but I certainly know that we need to bring more um, love and acceptance into our political realm um, because it, it is very dysfunctional. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Still, still dysfunctional, still very divisive as well. And that's brought, you know, right down into our communities, in our families and in our homes, that difference of opinion. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get out of this hour without uh, fulfilling the promise I made before the break. And that is about shifting your story when you are living a story. If it's if it is the Cinderella story and you are now the princess, that's Mm -hmm. pretty good. But if you are the Cinderella who's sweeping out the ashes from the greats, um, how can people begin to shift their story of who they are? What, what are some of the ways that people can make a change that is, is easy to do to, to start? Mm-hmm. You know, changes all, can be very difficult, 
But what are some easy things people can do to start making a change so that their story can shift? I think that um, the first thing that we can do is when we're not feeling particularly triggered, when we're feeling more even keeled, to just take out a, a pencil and paper or your computer and, you know, type this in. How might I have benefited from what happened? What are, the, what are the, the benefits or the potential benefits, ultimately, from what has happened? And for me, oh gosh, um, a little over a year ago, year and a half ago, I did a, a TEDx talk. And it was kind of surprising what I ended up talking about. And, and that was um, how I had felt like an outsider. And I'll get into that in a minute about what triggered that. But how there are benefits to feeling like an outsider. And I think that many, many people have felt like an outsider at one point or another in their lives. It's, we're so tribal. It's in our DNA that we don't want to get banished from the tribe because it will threaten our survival. So um, I realized that, you know, when I, when I was looking back at my life, when I first started feeling like, like an outsider was after I had been molested as a little girl. I was five years old and, um, it, it was a, a situation that I won't go into details about, but it was a couple of teenage boys. And it, the event itself was, you know, painful. But the most painful thing was how my parents reacted. First of all, my mother acted like it was my fault. And, you know, it was my, like a five-year-old, it was my job to keep myself, you know, safe. And even though my father had nothing to do with it, she decided because he was male, he should no longer cuddle with me, should no, no longer show me the physical affection. So there I had been molested, and then suddenly I felt this responsibility of being to blame. It was all my fault, and I was no longer getting the obvious love from my father. So that's a very traumatic thing to go through, and it, it affected my life in a variety of ways. And yet I realized that what happened after that is things got back to normal in the family in, in, in some sense. But there was a part of me that felt like an outsider. And I realized that in some ways it saved me because there I was always looking at the, the, the way the family functioned, the family beliefs, and I would question it. Because as an outsider, it's like, no, something feels really off here. You know, I don't feel like I belong anymore, even though I do belong. And that observer in me said, okay, well, you know, that kind of... Uh, religious perspective on, you know, other people will be damned to hell. Hmm, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem very compassionate. There, there were all sorts of things that came up. And I realized that I shifted dramatically by having this painful situation. And that story that I changed is, it served me. I got great purpose and transformation from my woundedness. Not just getting through it and getting over it, but it allowed me to grow up with a different perspective that ultimately served me. And, and as, you know, when we feel like an outsider, it can have us take a look at the tribal beliefs and say, hmm, you know, is this functional? Is this dysfunctional? Um, it, so anyway, shifting my story has allowed me to understand that that outsider looking in um, has really served me. And, and it's eliminated some of the pain because of it, because I realized that I got a lot out of it. Wow, I like that. Boy, that's the ultimate shifting your your story story. Mm. It is, and there's so much deep healing that goes on there. Uh, you know, Christina, I have not 
suffered a trauma like you went through, and I'm so sorry that you did. I've had my share of hassles, a lot of them self-created. They don't, they don't rank as tragedies or trauma in that sense at all, but they can raise your blood pressure pretty good for you. Mm. They can create some psychosomatic illnesses there, and I've been through my share of those, maybe more than my share, I don't know. But the thing that I come to when I hear your account of what happened to you is that if you're going to undertake self-healing, it really requires you ultimately to grant yourself the gift of a radical self-acceptance, mm -hmm. an unconditional love for yourself that does not depend on the approval of others or being vetted by others. It's simply a self-understanding that favors you. Mm, yeah, yeah. And, and, and part of that, I think, is to have compassion for ourselves. And, you know, when our blood pressure is rising, when we're feeling you know, hurt and victimized to have some compassion for that part of ourselves that's feeling that way, but to then simultaneously kind of take that higher level perspective of, okay, you know, this is, this is a, a very real thing that I'm feeling and experiencing, and how am I going to expand based on this? How can I shift based on this? Yeah, I like that. I, I, I really like what you just said. And I like what you said, Gary, too, about that, about the uh, about being your own advocate. I, there have been times in my life where despite the circumstances that were going on, I had to say I'm OK. And and to and to be my own advocate for my own um, well-being. So I, I think that's what we're talking about. And so in shifting your story, in shifting your perspective, part of what we can do is, um, is uh, recognize the good that we are, not wait for somebody else to tell us, identify those talents that we have, the skills that we have, the things that are good about us. I don't know that we keep that kind of a list. I think we keep the kind of list that says, you know, I'm lazy, I'm sloppy, I don't handle money well, I'm not good in relationships, mm -hmm. you know, I can't hold a job, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. I think we have a pretty good list going of the places where we fall down. Yeah. But do we have a list going of the places where we succeed and we, we do it well and we do it often? Yeah. I think that'd be a good place to start. It is, and I, I think that... Um... It's a good place to start, but I think we have to be careful not to have too much attachment to that list because what happens is when you let go of one of those things, you start to feel like you need to redefine yourself or there's something missing. Um, you know, I was a, a really good statistician and, um, you know, I was a good mother in a household where the father was there. And when I left my marriage, you know, it, it like it sort of shifted things. Um, so it's... It's the kind of thing where um, we do need to appreciate what we're good at, but we should appreciate our being and who we are, regardless of what's on that list. You know, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing where we, we tend to place attachment on achievements, attachment on skills, um, when in fact we should be able to appreciate ourselves without all those little attachments. 
One of the big mistakes I think people make, God knows I've made it countless times, is that we define ourselves in terms of our poll ratings. If we decide to do a thing and maybe we did it to our satisfaction, Mm -hmm. there's always room for improvement. But if people criticize us, we think less of ourselves. If they praise us, we think more of ourselves. Who's in control in that situation? It isn't you. Yeah. And you know, the, that you know. is the snare and delusion of self-esteem, I think, because when we esteem ourselves based on the evaluations of others, we put our self-evaluation aside in order to make their opinions more important than our own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's tricky because we are tribal in nature. And it's funny because... Um, this book, the top 20 myths about spirituality, well, it first started out the top 10 myths, and then there were so many more beyond that, and there are plenty more than 20, but I, I've limited it at 20. Um, I've ended up expanding the book. And for a long time, as I was pondering these notions and revising them and, and manipulating them and kind of seeing what needed to be created, um, I felt uncomfortable with the fact that I knew I was going to be ticking some people off. You know, there, there are going to be people in the consciousness movement who... who might say, what do you mean? Everybody needs to meditate. And, you know, one of, one of the things I say is that it's, it's helpful for some people. You know, some of these spiritual practices are really helpful, but it's kind of like going to the gym, you know, like some people go to the gym to, to work out and stay strong, but some people do it as a part of their lives, a moment-to-moment basis, you know, chopping wood, carrying the baby, um, you know, it, it's the sort of thing where um, we have to make sure that our our beliefs aren't so limited. And I forget where I was going with this now. Hmm. Um, Gary, you had just said something. Sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> it's, it's okay. <laughs> On live radio. But it, this idea of self-esteem, it's like uh, whose yes. perception uh, will reign supreme in your own mind. Right. Oh, and, I, and gotta, for me, yeah. I was I was worried about um, getting some backlash or not pleasing some of the people I've interviewed even. And, and so it took me a while to say, you know what, I'm okay with this. Um, I, I, I'm okay with my rebellious side. I'm okay with speaking my truth when it, it's risking getting people to think, oh, well, she doesn't know what she's talking about sort of thing. Um, and it's, it's hard because we are tribal. And, and the tribe, one of the tribes I've chosen in my life has been the consciousness community. And so we have to be really careful to be you know, to choose our tribes well, but also not to be so tribal that we can't like or love ourselves if we aren't fitting into that tribe. Boy, what do you do at that point when you have been in a family, you have been in a tribe that has certain beliefs that you have grown up with, and then you say, you know, I just don't believe that particular thing anymore. Mm. What do you do when you feel like you might be giving up your place in the tribe because you have a thought which is different from everyone else's thought. Mm, I think that the what we tend to do is we tend to kind of push the tribe away and we tend to criticize the tribe. And really, I think that the best thing we can do is love the tribe and say, oh, my goodness, this has helped me become who I am today. And um, I want to love you and I want to speak my truth. I want to, you know, make my life choices and you can either continue to to love me and, and feel connected as a part of my tribe or not. But it's, it's really important that as we leave any tribe, um, whether it be our family, whether it's political, whatever, that we leave with a sense and 
of compassion and love for where we've come from. I like that. <clears throat> there are good reasons for liking that. This, this whole idea of taking control of your life. I was wondering as this conversation moved along what the theme would be. And it sounds a lot to me like an argument in favor of self-empowerment. Mm. And self-empowerment there can't really exist without self-definition. Hopefully that remains fluid because if we're not changing over time then we're living the same day, you know, 5,000 times. But it, if we do take control of our lives, first of all, we're in control of our lives. And secondly, we are almost existentially, to get a, a, a bit philosophical about it, if existentialism includes facing forces greater than yourself in a world that can easily, on, on the, uh, the blink of an eye, become quite hostile to mm. you and your interests, maybe mm. even your survival. If you can still define who you are, what you want out of life, and you have some practical means or a method of attaining it, that is as close to self-mastery as I think could be expected of any human. Yeah, yeah, and I think that um, self-mastery and self-control are two different things, I, because I think that, um, you know, taking control of our lives, it's, it's, um, it's helpful in some ways to take responsibility, but we really aren't fully in control, and that it's this balancing act between um, finding meaning, taking responsibility, but also letting go to what is and what becomes because we don't control the world, you know, and I know that some of us are disappointed at moments by that, but it's, it's really a matter of also surrendering. Yes. Uh, very disappointed. Yeah. That uh, we don't control the world. And this is next time Christine is on with us. Let's make a note here that the bumper music will be <laughs> everybody wants to rule the world. <laughs> Very good. Very yeah. good. So in the remaining minutes that we have, Christine, so tell us a story, one that we can air on the radio about when you gave yourself permission to be as vulnerable as you dared to be. Mm. Oh gosh, um, I'm just gonna think, I'm just gonna talk about what happened to me after I left my husband of a gazillion years. I left my home that I thought was my forever home. Um, I left a business that I had created with three other individuals because it was dysfunctional. And it was one of those times when I had used my living situation, my neighborhood, my, um, you know, family unit and my career all to define myself. And as I let go of one thing after another, after another, and felt deep sadness about it that would keep bubbling up, um, I realized at one point that I didn't know who I was anymore. And it felt kind of uncomfortable to even acknowledge that and to sort of consciously be aware of that. And after I got done cringing and tried to find other little ways to define myself and let go of those, then I realized it, it was a very different approach that made me feel much more vulnerable. I, I liken the difference between like once upon a time, it was like I was in a boat with a GPS and, and, and you know, the cruise control would take me directly to where I was going to go. Uh, because I had chosen that, that GPS coordinate to being on a raft in the middle of the ocean getting blown about and not knowing where I was going to end up. And there was just 
a moment where it, it kind of like, okay, well, if I allow myself to be vulnerable and sad and let go, then, huh, I can be curious about where I'm going to end up and how I want to begin to redefine myself. So that, you know, that was a, a moment of vulnerability, a, a, a period of vulnerability, a period of sadness. And yet it has led me to a, a new passion um, and a new home and, you know, all sorts of living situations that, that I find, you know, much more pleasing and much support, more supportive of my life. And I'm working on this new book that I'm really excited about. I feel like I was born to bring this information to the consciousness movement. So um, it's worked out. And to say a bit more about that, Christine, it's fine to tease a book. When that book is out, we're going to want to have you back. We got about a minute and a half. Go uh -huh. for it. Okay. Well, okay. So once upon a time, we thought we had broken through our belief systems and you know gotten beyond religion. Some people continue to embrace religion, but view things more um, broadly. And what's happened is we've created this dogma around spirituality, what it means to be spiritual, uh, what it, how we approach spirituality. In fact, we have compartmentalized spirituality from the rest of our lives. And there's a lot of dysfunction that's been created. And it's, there's so many things that have been very, very supportive of us on our paths. And yet many of us have kind of hit the wall. Like, okay, well, I've expanded, I've expanded, and I've been working on creating positive energy and look at the world or, you know, things aren't perfect or things aren't as I want them. And I think what we have to do is we have to face the belief systems. First of all, list what our belief system is in detail and then question each and every thing and say, is it true or is it not true, just needs to be reoriented a little bit or should we throw that out completely? Because I think what happens is in order to live expansively um, and to really embrace our spiritual nature more into our lives in an integrated form, we are going to need to let go of those untruths. And those untruths are insidious. They like to hide between, behind words such as always, never, and should. Yes, those can be some toxic words. That's right, because they tend to, to pretend to an absolute status that in reality they do not possess. Mm, yes. Christine Upchurch, we are delighted as always to have you with us. Let's do it again soon. That Continued great. success. How about your... next week? Next, next week sounds great. We've, we've got lots more to talk about, Gary and Suzanne. Okay. We're up for <laughs> Part two. Stay tuned for the Christine Upchurch Show, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience and then American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. Yay. So glad that you were with us, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be back tomorrow on AM 1150, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here at Seattle's home of Alternative Talk. Until then, I hope this is the start of a great weekend for you.